Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, to Inspired by Math. In this podcast series, I interview people who are inspired by math and who are inspiring others. I'm very excited this morning to have with me Colin Mulcahy. He is a mathematician and a mathematician, and he recently published a book, Mathematical Card Magic, 52 New Effects, by A.K. Peters CRC Press. Um, Welcome, Colin. Hello. Hello. So let me tell listeners who haven't heard of you or your delightful book, and um, and we can forgive listeners if they haven't heard of your book because it really um, just came out maybe, what, um, I think Amazon says September 4th mm-hmm. of this year was the publication date, so um, not out for very long. So um, let's see. Mathematician Colin Mulcahy earned a BSc and MSc from University College Dublin in his native Ireland, and then a PhD from Cornell University. He's a professor of mathematics at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, where he's been teaching since 1988. His mathematical interests are broad, and he is a recipient of the Mathematical Association of America's Allendorfer Award for Excellence in Expository Writing. He's been, publi- he, he's been publishing original mathematical card trick principles in the um, bi- um, bi-monthly at the maa.org website since 2004, and other puzzles of his have appeared in the New York Times. He also blogs as Maths Column at the A Periodical and tweets as Card Column, and I will put all this information uh, on the blog so people can, can find your, your Twitter account and follow you and such. Um, and um, Colin was fortunate to know Martin Gardner for the last decade of his life, so you can bet that I'm going to ask you about Martin Gardner and to tell us stories about um, experiences that you had with him. So again, Colin, welcome. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Yeah. So tell us about um, your new book, Mathematical um, Card Magic. What's the book about? Um, Let's start with that. Well, I got interested in mathematical card tricks seriously in 1999, and I really hadn't paid that much attention, to be honest, before that, but it soon became quite an obsession, and I read as much as I could find of the existing literature. A large part of that that was available to the general public would have been written by Martin Gardner going back to the mid-1950s. He had a book that came out in 1956 called Mathematics magic and mystery, which has a lot of wonderful mathematically-based card principles in there. So I got hooked on all that good stuff, and I decided to start giving workshops on this topic. So I made up some notes, about 50 pages of notes, and somebody said to me, you should send it to Martin Gardner. And to be perfectly honest, uh, I wasn't aware that Martin was still in the land of the living because, you know, he was famous in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and obviously wasn't a young man at that point, and I kind of assumed that perhaps he had passed on. I was, of course, very much mistaken. Uh, somebody provided his address, 
And I sent these notes to him, and he wrote back and said, uh, you organize this material very well. Have you considered writing a book? And I was stunned because I hadn't. And to be honest, it wasn't a good idea at the time because I was just recycling other people's material, a lot of it being his. So I wrote back and said, uh, would you like to do a joint venture on this? Because a lot of this stuff is obviously originally stuff that you popularized. And he said, thanks, but no thanks. I've got my own writing projects. So time went by, and I started inventing new or discovering or creating new mathematical magic principles and publishing them uh, at the AMS, the American Math Society, and then more regularly at the MAA.org, the Math Association of America. And that, you know, just gathered momentum, and I ended up having a lot of material, and it took a long time to beat it into shape for a book that uh, even a year and a bit ago was probably 250 pages, and now it's 380. So it just kept growing and growing, and I just finally had to push it out the door and say, I'm done. So it took uh, took a lot longer than I would have planned, but uh, it's finished, and it's out, and I'm very happy that it's out. Okay, and right, so this is this is obviously a book on mathematical card magic. Can you say more about the book? And I know you have a column in the MAA where you have um, published um, mathematical tricks, and, and you said it was that your old old draft was um, not original, um, not not inclu- not um, mostly original material, but I think you have changed quite a bit of that. Can you say more about that? Right. Well, um, I didn't feel comfortable, you know, recycling other people's material, although I found the stuff entertaining, but I thought if I was going to write a book, I should try to create some original material. So I just said over a long period, I guess nine years at the MAA.org now, six times a year or so, about 50 or 60 such um, columns have come out. And every one of them focused on a particular topic that I would either, you know, tweak an existing principle or maybe discover something new. So the time came to try to organize them. And what I ended up doing was writing a book with 13 chapters, 13 main chapters, uh, one for each value in a deck of cards. And each chapter has four effects or tricks in it, one for each suit in the deck. So there's 52 tricks, just like there's 52 cards in a regular deck. So there, you know, the chapters are arranged by theme. There's one that might be related to uh, Fibonacci numbers and another chapter that might be related to poker tricks. So it might be a magical theme or it could be a mathematical theme. And there's a little bit of more advanced mathematics towards the end, such as error correcting codes applied to two-person mathematics, but it's spelled out in non-technical language. I tried to make it accessible to the general public. So even at the last minute, I was taking out words like linear combination, which wouldn't phase a math student, but would puzzle a member of the general public, and I would just spell out what it meant. So there's people, hopefully, in the general public, and magicians in general, and people with some interest in mathematics, would have a chance of being able to understand the principles and, and apply them. So the idea is every for every effect to do something entertaining with a deck of cards. If you're lucky with a completely random, genuinely shuffled deck, but obviously in many cases with a deck that's been pre-rigged, you know something in advance, the top card, the bottom card, the middle card, the tenth card, perhaps the top six cards. And surprisingly, even if you do set the deck up in advance, you can sometimes shuffle once and still be able to perform minor miracles with the help of mathematics. That fact has been known since the 1950s. It's called the Gilbert's Principle. So I came up with some new twists on that. 
So it's pretty, you know, if you can hand the deck to the audience and say, here, you shuffle and take it back and do a trick, that certainly gives the impression that uh, nothing has been rigged. But sometimes mathematics helps out there too. So that's, hmm, that's very, very intriguing. That, so you have me curious about something in, in what you just said. Um, would you say that, in general, magicians are interested in mathematics, and I'm talking about, you know, magicians that might do things with decks of cards and, you know, sort of intellectual kinds of things, if you see where well, I'm heading. Right. The answer to that is kind of mixed. Um, when I first got into the magic thing and joined the local magic circle in Atlanta around 2000, I assumed that magicians would love mathematics. Uh, they were very polite about it. But there's there's a certain distancing there. Uh, I, I find that it's a minority of magicians who feel comfortable with with mathematics any more advanced than, you know, casting out nines or adding and subtracting in disguise. Um, they sometimes don't understand why fairly simple things work. The famous three pile trick, where you have 21 or 27 cards and you deal in the three piles and you say, tell me which pile your card is in, and you do it a few times over. That's fairly routine and, and transparent to a mathematician, but it's quite baffling to a magician who hasn't you know, thought about it carefully. So there's a certain resistance there. At the same time, they respect, I think, the power of mathematics, especially the Gilbert Shuffle. That really shook them up, I think, 55 years ago <laughs> as, as an example of something that you know, they could use in their work where they didn't really have to understand what was going on, but they could still see, you know, like I said, have the audience shuffle the cards and still something predictable could could be said. So, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting question. A book, a wonderful book that came out two years ago by Diaconus and Graham called Magical Mathematics, published by Princeton, is a phenomenal, beautiful, beautiful book, uh, very inspirational. And it, it's kind of a summary of hundreds of years, but in particular the last 60 or 70 years of very good mathematic created by people of you know, the caliber of Diaconus and Graham, who were top-notch mathematicians, but also people like Bob Hummer and Magic World and Ron Vole and various other people. And I thought that was a super-duper book, but I've, been <clears throat> but I've been a little surprised to find that magicians find it a little intimidating because it does have you know, a little more hint of heavy-duty mathematics than they're comfortable with. So... Um, yeah, magicians respect mathematics, and some of them are prepared to do it. Um, there is a, one noticeable distinction. There's a type of mathematic called two-person mathematic, and that's how I actually got into the field. It's where two people who have agreed on mathematical communication strategy in advance do a trick. A classic example is a famous one called the Fitch-Cheney five-card trick, and it goes as follows. I would have an assistant who's also mathematically trained, although it could be somebody who doesn't know much mathematics. I used to do it with my kids when they were 10 or 11 years old. I would train them how to do it. So I would have an audience member pick any five cards from the deck, and they would hand them to me, and I would look at them and give them one card back. So I would retain four, give one back. I would display the four retained cards in a row on a table. And then my assistant, who might be my daughter, would come in, look at the four cards, and tell the other person what the fifth card was. The communication is not verbal. It's not physical. It's purely in the arrangement of the cards. And it's remarkable that it can be done for any five cards. That's what got me hooked back in 1999. And um, a twist on that for four cards was kind of the first magic trick I invented. And it's the oldest and actually the last trick in the book. So that's one that magicians respect a little more, but from their perspective, if you're going to use what they would call a shill 
if you're going to use a stooge, you can do anything. Because in the magic world, you know, little body language, scratching at the head, communication, verbal cues. So they don't see the point in mathematics for that purpose because if you have an assistant, you can do anything. At the same time, some top-notch, some top-notch magicians do use mathematics. I saw David Copperfield 10 or 12 years ago, stunning stage show at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And one trick he did was obviously mathematical. What he did was he had everybody, as they took their seat and they sat down, there was a piece of paper on the seat and it had eight sections to it. Seven of them were identical and one had a full moon on it. Seven were blank. There were perforations. So he said, I want you to tear those up so you get eight cards. One has a moon on it. And then he told us to randomize them. And there were, there were several steps in the instructions, but it really did appear randomized. And he told us to sit on the little pack of eight cards, paper cards, when we were finished. Then he distracted us with something very flashy. We forgot all about it. Twenty minutes later, he said, I want you now to think very hard. And um, I bet the third card down has the full moon on it. And if it does, I want you to stand up. And everybody stood up, looked at the pieces of paper under their seats. And almost without exception, he got a standing ovation because everybody's third card was the full moon. And I immediately realized this was a mathematical principle. It was a sorting algorithm, a binary sorting algorithm. There were three steps, eight cards, two to the power of three is eight. And at the same time, I couldn't reconstruct it. It drove me nuts. So I finally asked on a magic forum, and I made contact with, I think it was Dan Harlan, who was the magician who invented it. And it's a beautiful mathematical principle. And David Copperfield pays a fee every time he performs that to the person who invented it, and I think it's Dan Harlan. So um, mathematics can make money and entertain people on a huge scale. Wow. That's that 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 is a great story. Um, so let me ask you um, again about something in in your response. So right, so you mentioned that um, right one of one of your tricks, I think it was was it was it in the last chapter was was about error correcting codes, right? And right, so certainly non mathematicians and non uh, maybe non engineers would would find that kind of mathematics to be pretty intimidating. So, so I'm curious, this is back to the question of, of what is the book about, but maybe more specifically, you know, who is the audience for your book? And then related to that question is, how many of these tricks are self-working? Because I would think that one of the values of, of having mathematical tricks is you have the mathematics supporting what you're doing, so there's less trickery if there's more math. Can, can you speak well, to that? Yeah, well, the, the tricks are all self-working. I mean, I sometimes suggest embellishments where you do a false shuffle and, you know, and then state telling a big white lie, I just shuffle the cards. But they're all, they all have versions which are entirely self-working. There's no sleight of hand whatsoever. I don't do sleight of hand. I'm not good enough to do that kind of stuff. I can do a little hokey false shuffle and that's about it. Um, there's no double lifts or, you know, anything sophisticated. I mean, the fanciest thing I do is tap the cards on the table and peek at the bottom card with the audience not spotting me doing it, hopefully, so that I know one card after the deck has been shuffled. That's about as fancy as the magic goes. So the mathematics is, is behind everything, and the mathematics and a deck of cards, simple deck of cards does the trick. But the question of who's the audience, I think it's aimed at the general public who have an interest in magic and self-working magic where you don't need real magic skills. I think people interested in recreational mathematics. Obviously, anybody who grew up on Martin Gardner has, or has been inspired by his writings in the past couple of decades. Um, I think it's potentially got a broad audience. And then magicians who are looking for new 
new uh, ideas to inject into their magic. I think, uh, I mean, the the error correcting code. I'll give you an example of I think what's the highlight of that chapter. I would I would give the deck to somebody and I would say, uh, please pick a fairly good poker hand. So somebody would struggle to pick five cards that were fairly good. And I make a point of saying not a very good one. So you might pick, you know, two tens and two sevens and a three or something. I would then look at the cards and I would display them on a row on the table. And I would say to the poker aficionado, I'm going to give you a chance you don't normally get in real life. You can switch one of these cards for another one in the deck, perhaps improving your poker hand. So I want you first to decide which card you want to get rid of. So, you know, if they had picked two pairs and a, a dud, they might opt to replace the dud. So they slip out a card, and then I give them the rest of the deck, and I say, you can replace that card you put out with any other card in the deck on one condition. If the card you're rejecting is red, is red you need to pick a black card. If the card you're picking is black, you need to substitute a red card. Now, unless they've tried to go for four of a kind or something, got very greedy, that shouldn't crimp their style. So they'll find another seven or another ten or whatever. Then my accomplice, who understands the mathematics in advance, looks at the display, having seen nothing before, and knows which card they switched. Hmm. And uh, it's based on color distribution, but it works for any five cards in the deck. So that's an example where, you know, and you can explain how to do that. It's a little tricky. You might want a crib sheet. So maybe it could be done over the telephone where, where I telephone or I say to the I say to the poker aficionado, please would you telephone the names of these five cards after the change to my friend who's you know out of the room. Uh, my friend, if they're on the other end of a telephone, or maybe it can be done on Twitter or email or text, they have the opportunity to look at a crib sheet to help them to expedite the decoding. They would be able to phone back and say, I think the third card or the fourth card over here, one of those is the one that you switched, which seems pretty miraculous. Yes, it, it does, and I, I imagine that the people with a computer science bent who don't think that they're mathematically inclined, although I imagine the set of those people is fairly small, they would certainly appreciate ideas of encoding information and decoding mm-hmm. yeah. information. Then, then I, then I also want to ask you, but I'm going to ask this question in an interesting way. I was going to, going to ask how difficult are the are the techniques to master, and, and the way I'm going to ask that is, you know, who's the youngest person that you know? You know how how young can somebody be if they are motivated enough to 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 pull off some of these tricks? I think eight or nine. I've taught uh, two or three of what I'll call my my greatest hits uh, to people in that age group, and and they've done well. I was out in California recently at the Julia Robinson Mathematics Festival, which was held in Stanford in May, and I had you know prepared to perform a couple of my greatest hit, so to speak, and I was doing one of them called the ice cream trick for a group of kids assembled, and these, these kids ranged in age from, you know, 7 to 17. And one kid, it was about 13 or 14, as soon as he started doing the trick, he said, oh, I know this one, I know this one. And, you know, you hear this occasionally, and children often say things like that. And I kind of grinned and said, really? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he seemed quite insistent. So I did it for him, and he said, yeah, I know how to do that. So I gave him the deck, and he did it back to me, and I was astounded. So I had to say to him, where did you learn this? <laughs> and he said, oh, I learned it at summer camp in Connecticut. So I probed further, and it turned out that he had a teacher at this summer camp who had learned it from the web. From you know, it's, I had put it up on the web years ago, and uh, the teacher had taught it to this kid who wasn't from Connecticut. He was from New Jersey, I think, originally, and he found his way to California and taught it back to me. So that was, 
that was that was cool. Kind of completed the cycle. That 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 is a great story. Um, very cool. So you are obviously very um, passionate about magic. It just comes across in you know in your voice and your answers. Um, tie that, if you will, for our listeners to your love about mathematics. In particular, do you have an interesting story when when you were young as a boy or as a young adult of of getting inspired um, about mathematics? Well, when I was a teenager, uh, like many teenagers, only small parts of the world made any sense to me whatsoever. And mathematics and science, to some extent in general, were things that made more sense to me than, than other things. I remember having a particular disdain for history and anything to do with industry at the time. And while I've kind of flirted with industry a little bit over the last 20 years, uh, I'm happy to leave that part alone. In hindsight, I I, I missed the boat completely on history. History is kind of very important, and I'm very interested in history now. But, you know, when I was 16, going to college, mathematics seemed to be, um, that or physics seemed to be the only way forward. Ironically, when I started university in Ireland, I didn't know that you could, in the American parlance, major in mathematics. I assumed I would have to do physics or chemistry, and I had an older brother who had done chemistry. I thought I might go the physics route. But towards the end of my first year, and this was a three-year bachelor's program, I found out by accident that you could actually just do mathematics and nothing else. And this was in a situation now, it's a little different from a liberal arts education in the U.S. because it's assumed that in secondary school, high school, you've been exposed to the liberal arts stuff. So I was in the science track. I was doing physics, chemistry, maths, and applied math. And I happily said goodbye to Smelly Chemistry Labs and Physics Labs that never worked for me and spent the next three years doing exclusively mathematics and applied mathematics. And that was just a revelation because I spent two years of incredibly intense study doing that and deciding, well, this is what I want to do forever. And that's what I've got away with doing so far. I do technically have a day job, uh, but I feel that I've been a student all my life, and uh, my my desire to learn uh, has never diminished. I mean, I think I'm a lifelong learner. You know, I pick up new hobbies and interests. Obviously, mathematics has been one of them in the last 10 or 15 years, but uh, on the mathematics front, I'm always trying to expand my horizons and learn something new. So, uh, yeah, mathematics has been good to me. It's taken me to cool parts of the world too right so when when you fell in love with with math was there a particular math problem you were chewing on or a particular branch of mathematics that you fell in love with no not really at the time i liked i liked everything i mean as, as time went by i drifted towards the algebra side rather than analysis analysis is what calculus is when it grows up i guess algebra is what arithmetic is when it grows up so I, I gravitated towards the algebra side, which is interesting because even though I'm officially trained as an algebraist in grad school, these days, given the choice, I'd actually prefer to teach analysis to undergraduates over algebra, you know, at the advanced undergraduate level, which I, I didn't see that coming either. But, um, you know, I, over the years, I've picked up an interest in a topic which is famous, but famously ignored for much of the last 50 years in the curriculum everywhere at the university level, and that's geometry. When I was an undergraduate, we hardly saw any pictures whatsoever. That was a byproduct of a culture that developed in the 50s and 60s. Um, A lot of my professors had been trained in the U.S. in the 50s and 60s, and there was a level of abstraction where even in a subject that might officially have the word geometry in the title, pictures were considered a no-no. 
that's kind of comical, I think, in hindsight, and geometry is slowly making a, a reappearance in the undergraduate curriculum. But I certainly got interested in geometry about 20 years ago, and it's one of my favorite courses to teach now. You know, it's it's, it's in, intriguing to me about geometry because when when I was in, in high school and then in, um, in, in college, there wasn't much geometry that, that I learned. It, it has always felt to me, you know, decades later, like that's a big gap in my math education. I'm not particularly good at geometry. I never very much got exposed to more than some trivial amounts of it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because unless you're a flat earther, um, you should be interested in, in the possibilities of geometry that isn't the plain flat one where the three angles and a triangle add up to 180. And in fact, there are two such geometries that are not too hard to imagine. One is the geometry of a sphere. And we do live in a sphere, as pilots and boat captains know. And the people who program their software have to get that right. And NASA is pretty good at spherical geometry for obvious reasons. And then there's the other hyperbolic geometry, the, the geometry of, you know, uh, curly kale cabbage or nudibranchs or various hyperbolic surfaces. There's, there's now a, a new movement to do a lot of crocheting and knitting using fiber, you know, fiber mathematics in a non-technical sense. I actually Googled that phrase the other day and found references to things that have nothing to do with fibers, but there's a lot of recreational type knitting and crocheting now that's fascinating that does beautiful geometric stuff. Some of it's spherical and some of it's hyperbolic. And if you're not familiar with it, look it up on the web. Hmm. Okay. That's. Uh, I will also leave that as a as a diversion, interesting um, project for listeners to, to to look this up. So, was was there a a particular moment of of inspiration, both um, you know, for your love of magic and 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 you know to 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 write a book? about this? Well, I guess as a teacher, I have the gift or curse or bad habit or good habit that when I learn something new and I think I understand it remotely, I want to shout it from the rooftops. So I try to find an excuse to squeeze it into a class or inflict it on my friends or family. My wife's a mathematician, so she's reasonably patient when I tell her about something that I think is cool that she hasn't heard about before. In the case of the Mathemagic, it's not too hard to find an excuse. At the beginning of every semester when I walk into a class, no matter what the class is, I usually bring a deck of cards and perform, to start with, a mathematical mystery or miracle using a deck of cards, even before I hand the syllabus out. That generally gets their attention. Um, if it's a calculus class, I probably won't have an excuse to come back and explain the trick later on that semester, but in just about every other class, be it probability, statistics, algebra, um, geometry even, uh, discrete math, there's an excuse to explain it later on in the course. Uh, it might come a week later, it might come a month later, and that kind of keeps them motivated, I hope, because they see that mathematics has an application that would never have occurred to them, which is just plain entertainment. I say, if you learn how to do this trick, you can impress your friends, your roommates. Uh, I think they get a kick out of that. Sure. Yes, I've, I've certainly never had a, a math professor walk into a class with a deck of cards. I, I, I would I would certainly enjoy that and the challenge mm -hmm. of figuring out, you know, how did he or she do that? Um, right. So so all right. So let me ask you, 
So these um, card tricks are, are mostly original. Where, where does the inspiration come from? Is it, you know, you're going out for, you know, for a run or, or you're, you're in the shower? Well, yes. Actually, um, my thesis, my PhD thesis was completed in the shower. I remember that vividly. That was an inspiration moment in the shower. I guess I've had a few since, but to be honest, running or biking has provided me a great, great source of inspiration. I never, I never wear headphones. I feel the need to be alert, aware of traffic, and also attuned to nature or the city when I'm outdoors. But I'm just, you know, when you get in the zone, sometimes you just start obsessing about something. It might be the Fibonacci numbers or some mathematical principle, and you're thinking, how can I get a car trick out of that? How can I get a car trick out of that? And your mind goes blank, and you arrive home, and you rush to the terminal and start typing stuff in, and, you know, maybe one time out of three, the idea pans out. So I find exercise has actually been a great source of inspiration. But I'm always on the lookout for stuff. I'm always thinking, now, could that be turned into a card trick? Maybe a two-person card trick. So, I mean, I'll give you an example, and this I'll put out as a challenge to people. There's a famous theorem called Ramsey's Theorem. Ramsey was a mathematician in England in the 20s or 30s who died very young, and uh, he proved uh, a result which became the basis of a branch of combinatorics now called Ramsey theory. But in its simplest version, it says the following. Given any six people, either three of them are mutual friends or three of them are mutual non-friends, meaning three people who never met each other before. And it's got to do with graphs. Um, you know, Knowing people is connecting a line between two points. So if you put six dots on a page and draw lines between them, no matter which lines you draw, there'll either be three points that are all connected to each other or three points which are not connected to each other at all. And it's not too hard to prove, and it's kind of interesting, and it's surprising, and it's, it's, it's fun to do at a party, round up six people and say, have you guys met? And no matter what the answers are, even if people lie, uh, the statement I made will be true. Either three will know each other or three will not know each other. I've been thinking about that for 10 years, about how to turn it into a card trick, and I've yet to come up with a solution. But it's something that I think about from time to time, and if I ever get it, I'll be one happy camper. But maybe some listeners will come up with a clever application. That's that's what I was thinking of. Is yes, maybe maybe somebody in the listening audience will will come up with something. So, yeah, would would you say that typically your your subconscious mind chews on a particular idea for weeks or months or years, or or do do some of well, them just come some, in an epiphany? Some things, some things I chew on. Um, I, I mentioned earlier the Gilbert's principle, which which is about shuffling cards. Uh, typically, one shuffles two piles of cards. Um, there's various fancy ways to do that in terms of the physical handling of the game. But a very simple way to shuffle two piles of cards is to put them on the table beside each other with a few inches gap, twirl them at your fingers into rosettes. This is called the Leonard Green rosette shuffle. And then just smush the two packets together. That's a very simple way to do it. And children enjoy that more than they do shuffling because the pack of cards is actually difficult for children or people with small hands to, to manage. I've been worried for years about what would happen if you did it with three piles of cards. Was there any predictable outcome? We know the predictability for two piles. And I thought about that on and off for a long, long time. And while I didn't personally come up with much in the way of an answer, I managed to extract a theorem out of Ronald Graham, who is a well-known combinatorist at University of San Diego and co-author of the magical mathematics book I mentioned. I badgered him long enough that he finally said, oh, yes, here's a result. And I found a related result buried in a book from about 50 years ago. And putting them together 
it was my most recent card column at the MAA. So while it doesn't yet have a great magic application, at least we know something about the mathematics that we didn't know before. So some things nag at me for a long time. But to be honest, I'm a very deadline-driven kind of person. Um, every two months, and it's always at the very last minute, I publish something at the MAA. So October's will be late October. And sometime between now and late October, I have to come up with something new to write there. And it's been known to happen as close to the deadline as two days. When I just sit down and say, okay, we need a new idea. We need it now. And sometimes I even start, I have a germ of an idea, and then I write half the blog before I even check out the idea, which is not very smart, but, you know, I'm deadline-driven. And then I go back and beat it into the best shape I can and unleash it on the public. So luckily, under those circumstances, I would say one time out of three, I've come up with something worthwhile that's gone into the book. Um, you know, there's a couple of good ones that just came to me because I had a deadline. Hmm. Yes, Strange, that, but true. Yes, that would, that would, that would, that would, if it were me, I would I would certainly be nervous about that. Um, so so I I'm curious. I you know your book is a wonderful book for people, for mathematicians who maybe will want to be um, intrigued. Maybe will get drawn into the mathematics, and vice versa, right? Mathematicians who hadn't considered magic and, and want some, some sort of, a, of, of an entree. And, 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 and so this question, I, I would normally ask it about the book, but the book is, is, is too brand new to really ask about it. But, but I'm curious if you have stories of people who have, let's say, you know, read your blog articles over the years and have written to you and said, hey, you got me really excited about math, or I was always into math, and you got me really excited about magic. Well, um, I meet people at the professional meetings, the Mathematical Association of America meetings twice a year. Sometimes I'll be on the elevator, and my name tag says card column, okay. And, uh, you know, people will stop me and say, I've been enjoying your column for years, and I, you know, got some students interested in mathematics using this trick or that trick or whatever. So, yeah, I think people are reading them. I got some feedback from the MAA headquarters about a month ago that the past year or two of columns are getting about 1,000 readers each, which is, you know, very gratifying. I mean, a couple of dozen would be nice, a couple of hundred would be nicer, but 1,000 plus is, is very nice, and I'm hoping that with the book there will be some cross-synergy there. It's kind of curious because I've given away most of the book in a more primitive form, the blogs at the MAA for the last nine years, I have given away my best secrets and freely. And yet, I discovered, and I wouldn't have believed this, especially in an era where books seem to be almost extinct and everybody wants e-books and so on, I discovered I'm getting a slightly kind of a new level of respect for actually having a physical book to my name. And people who didn't bother reading the blogs, I think are paying more attention now. It's like, oh, he's got a book. He must be for real. Uh, they could have read the same stuff free five years ago or something, anyway. So it's kind of interesting. So maybe the book will drive more people back. Because there's, there's lots of things in the blog that are too technical, too mathematical, things about standard deviation, which might entertain a mathematical audience, but they're too technical for the general public. So there's things in there that, you know, that I would say 75%, 80% overlap, but there's things in the book that aren't in the blog, and there's things in the blog that aren't in the book. So I'm hoping that readers of one will check out the other and find some 
something else to complement what they've already read and enjoyed. Well, you know, I, I can tell you from my experience that as electronically, how much, or, you know, digitally savvy as I am, I still much prefer um, physical paper books to ebooks, especially when it's something mathematical and I may want to mm-hmm. write notes in it or mm-hmm. um, there, there's something kinesthetic, yeah. something about engaging with a sheet of paper that yeah. is not the same as, as a Kindle or, or any other kind of e-reader. Right. Well, the, the big worry I have is all this electronic stuff that we have, do we really know where it all is? I mean, my laptop died a few weeks ago, and I was terrified that I'd lost a lot of files and a lot of valuable photographs. Fortunately, this time I was able to recover the stuff. But, you know, all the books and CDs I bought over the years, they're in the basement. I know where they are. Unless there's a flood or a fire, they're pretty safe. And if, there's, if other people have copies of them, well, somebody's got a copy. So I'm 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 nervous, you know, not not to mention the fact that readers will become extinct. I mean, I have stuff on floppy disks that are essentially inaccessible now, and we all have things. If we're of a certain age, we all have things on VHS tape, you know, family videos of children and so on, which are pretty hard to access. So you know, books and photographs of the old-fashioned type can still be read with bare hands and no electricity on desert islands. Right, right, and you know, th- you know, this, this is a little bit of, of of a detour, but one of the other reasons that that I love paper books is because I can give them away. Right. And and just a few months ago, I gave away maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty math books that I popular math books that I had collected mm-hmm. over a number of years, and most of these come from from publishers. They want me to mm-hmm. to, to write reviews because of my blog. And uh, they will send me books, and I'll write reviews. And then I noticed these books were sitting on my shelf, and I wasn't referring to them very often. And then I I connected with a fellow who has a nonprofit. Um, this is Ken Fan at um, Girls Angle, and I sent him. I think it was four, four or five, maybe it was four boxes of books. And so he gets to to share them with these girls who are um, getting inspired by math. So Great. yet another reason to to have paper books. And it, and my understanding is that these digital ebooks are not so easy to share. I mean, unless unless you know you go down these dark alleys right. where you right. you know scrape the book off the reader, yeah. but then it's all illegal. Yeah. And 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 so I don't want to go there. Right. Well, what I'm really hoping is that. You know, if the book sells a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand copies, uh, a few will be stashed away in, in magic libraries. And, you know, David Copperfield is famous for having an extraordinary collection of magic paraphernalia and no doubt books as well. So that when, you know, maybe websites won't exist in 20 years or 100 years or 1,000 years, maybe there'll be a paper copy left somewhere. So people won't have to reinvent these tricks. Right, right. Um also, I have to acknowledge you for, as you said, giving away your best best secrets because that is not typical of magicians. Magicians, at least in, in my stereotypical understanding, want to carefully guard their secrets because for them the magic is about being able to do it over and over again and people not knowing, people being in awe of them. Well, I mean, there's a good reason. First of all, magic is the livelihood of many, many people. So it's really their intellectual property, and you know, doctors don't 
give away free advice on cancer or brain surgery. They charge a hefty price to see them, so I can understand that. But the other thing is, a, a magic trick, to some extent, is like a good joke. If it entertains, you don't see the punchline coming, and it knocks you sideways, and you're grinning from ear to ear as you leave the room. Um, who wants to hear the same joke twice? Or who wants to just get a set of punchlines, a collection of punchlines? So once the, once the punchline's out, you can't really tell the joke a second time to the same audience. And, you know, when I'm doing a trick for somebody, I, I mean, I will sometimes explain, depending on the audience, if it's for students, I'll make them ask questions, I'll make them think about it for a while. If it's for a friend or a relative, um, I probably won't, unless I detect genuine signs of intellectual curiosity. So if they say, how did you do that? I usually just answer with the stock answer, which is reasonably well, thank you rather than you know, spilling the beans. Because if you spill the beans, it actually deflates you in their eyes. Um, that's the first lesson you learn as a, as a performer. I'm not a magician. I'm a mathematician who dabbles in mathematics. But once you explain your secrets, um, people actually think less of you. There's an there's a overwhelming reaction of, oh, is that all it is? And uh, that's not the way you want to be remembered. So... <laughs> You're better off not explaining. And I've also, even at mathematics meetings, I've sometimes left bits of paper, which, which handouts, which had explanations of tricks. And I've seen people pick them up and read them without seeing the trick performed. And I've seen, I've overheard people saying to each other, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, not that impressed. But if they'd seen somebody do the trick before they read the explanation, I think they'd have a different attitude. So again, if you read the punchline of a joke and work back to the introduction, you know it's not going to do much for you. So, okay, f fair enough. I mean, it, it almost sounds like dating advice. You hear that that advice that, you know, you don't want to let your potential partner know too much about you, because then he or she is not going to be, you know, as as interested. As, you know, if there's this air of mystique, then it then it makes it makes for a more exciting connection. Well, that's another way of looking at it. Yes. But, you know, mathematicians are trained to share their secrets, and magicians, for obvious reasons, two of which I've just mentioned, are trained not to. So there certainly is a clash of cultures there, and it's something I get reminded of daily because um, I've even had magicians not berate me, but, but, but really look at me funny because I give away, you know, because I do give away my secrets, and they, they think there's something strange about that or suspect so they're not only i mean they'd be upset if i gave away their secrets obviously but they're some some of them are genuinely upset that i give away my own secrets which i find intriguing <laughs> so do you have the concern that you're going to you know walk into the you know, the next maa convention or gathering for gardner or some meeting where you know maybe a bunch of the audience has read your book and um what are you going to do no uh, I did have those concerns in the early days, but um, I guess with that old saying that if your ideas are any good, you'd have to force them down people's throat. Uh, <laughs> when you actually give away secrets on the web, uh, unless you're getting you know millions of hits, unless you're written up in the New York Times and people actually click on your website, you know I, I'm getting a thousand hits per month now on, on the new um, mathematical principles that are put up on the MA blog. That's not that much. In the, it, it's very nice, but it, you know, in the great scheme of things, it's not that much. And those thousand people are not going to the MA meetings. It's probably a combination of students and people who've read previous ones, and so on. So I think 
if I were to write about something and try and give a talk about it two months later to an MAA-savvy audience, yes, there might be five people in the audience who, who would be already familiar with it. But overall, it's, you know, it's not a problem, I don't think. Okay, just, uh, just, just wondering. So let me switch gears here and ask you about Martin Gardner. You referred to him in your book as the best friend mathematics ever had. I, I love that quote. And so can you, can you share a story or two about what Martin Gardner was like, how he inspired you? And I know you've, you've done other interviews. You did one with my friend Shecky at, um, um, at Math Tango, where he is you know, very interested in Martin Gardner. Martin Gardner very much influenced him and, as I recall, inspired him to start blogging. So if you have a, a, a different story or if you want to repeat a story, um, please share. Well, Martin Gardner is somebody who I, like many, many thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of teenagers throughout the world, I had a teacher in school who bought Scientific American and shared some of the Martin Gardner articles with us when we were teenagers. I bought one or two of his books. There were very few of them available at the time in Ireland um, in the late 70s, and then you know, did my more serious formal mathematical training and frankly forgot all about recreational mathematics for a good 10, 15, 20 years. As I mentioned, when I was pointed in his direction many, many decades later, I kind of assumed that he probably wasn't alive anymore. It turned out to be mistaken. He was very much alive and well. He wrote prolifically, first for Scientific American, monthly, from the mid-50s to the early 80s. I think he wrote 300 columns for them. They were extremely influential. A lot of people to this day, when I mention it, will say, I only bought Scientific American to read the Martin Gardner columns. And I know that their sales took a hit when it became clear that Martin was no longer writing for them because there were a slight number of people who bought it once a month just to read his, his wonderful stuff. I, I, I was one of those people, by the way. There you go. Yep. So uh, I didn't. I, I just saw some of them when I was a teenager and then kind of forgot about them. But coming back to him, I realized that he was alive and well and had actually been very prolific since he retired from Scientific American, he had lived in Chicago and New York in his early career and then moved to North Carolina and eventually, for the last decade of his life, back to the state he was born in, Oklahoma. So I had an opportunity to visit him, I think it was three times, in Oklahoma. He lived in an old folks' home. He was the intellectual powerhouse of the neighborhood, I can assure you. The amount of mail that went in and out of his mailbox probably exceeded that for the entire rest of the retirement community combined. And uh, in a modest space with just a couple of bookshelves and a few favorite items on the wall, an original Escher print, the picture of Albert Einstein taking the day he got U.S. citizenship, and uh, various other recreational and mathematics-related things. I think he probably had a Mandelbrot set up there, too. He continued to write, and in fact... I think he wrote five or six books just in the three or four years that I spent trips visiting him. Extraordinary prolific. The man was in his 90s at this point. He was a very modest, kindly man, very shy, unassuming. He had a great sense of humor. He was quite, quite the trickster. And um, he's famous for one of the Scientific American columns. I think it was April 1975 or 76, it was a spoof column where he put in all sorts of things that weren't true, and because everything else he'd ever written had been true, people believed it. It was at an era where you couldn't check things out on the Internet. 
he claimed, for instance, that Leonardo da Vinci had invented the flush toilet. <laughs> and uh, there were some mathematical curiosities in there. I think he had a map that he claimed couldn't be coloured with four colours, <laughs> which some mathematician had provided for him, and it was one that was tricky to colour with four colours, and this was just before the four-colour proof was announced, which was, I think, 77. Ah, okay, it was, it was before, I was wondering. Just okay. before. Okay, yeah, very good. I believe so. So, you know, he was a jokester and a prankster, uh, as well as being a very serious intellectual, but you would never know it to look at any photographs of him because the man was so shy that when a camera came out, he would freeze up. And if you look at all the photographs of him on the backs of his books, he looks a little severe, a little dowdy, or just not friendly. So in, in person, he was, he was a total sweetheart. He was really kind, um, generous man. He, he cracked jokes. He loved, he loved dirty jokes. He actually wrote a book with Mel Stover, who is a, uh, another magician of his own vintage, also has passed on now, a Canadian magician. Mel and Martin collected bad jokes and naughty jokes, <laughs> such things from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and they finally published a book on it, which very few people know about. Uh, it's got the title is something like Let's Eat a Peach or something, I can't remember came out about 10 or 15 years ago, and it doesn't have Martin's name on it. It's credited to uh, a fake preacher from Georgia. <laughs> it's got some very uh, risque drawings and um, crosswords with naughty entries in them. Uh, very much in, this, in a humorous style that would have been popular in, in, in gentlemen's clubs, shall we say, in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Very old school, but very, very charming. And I actually offered him something that he might use for such a book if he ever chose to write a second one and he was very excited and he wrote it down he said yes I'll put that in the next one <laughs> but the next one never came hmm hmm and, and you said you so you met with him you said it was three times that I you went three times I went out to visit him for you know three to five days at a time in Oklahoma and, and uh, we had a great time it was just it was delightful to spend time with so did, did you discuss mathematics? Did you reminisce about his life? What, what were those conversations well, like? Well, I, I, you know, tried to record him, uh, interview him a few times, and he was very generous with his time and memories. So I got some good stories. Um, I would ask him what he was writing about then, because he always had projects going on. He was either revising books or writing new ones. Sometimes... We would just, you know, one of us would, would pose a mathematical problem and silence would reign for 15 or 20 minutes. And one of us would finally say, oh, I think I know how this works, or that reminds me of something. Or, or he would say, I think I wrote about that 20 years ago. His memory wasn't the greatest, obviously, in his later years, but he had a fabulous archive and filing system. So if you could jot his memory about something, he, he could quote chapter and verse very quickly by just looking up his files. Right, and I and I believe it was in in the in your interview with um, with Christian at the a periodical where you said that um, when when he died his um, his material went to Stanford. That happened before he died. He okay. he had a warehouse literally uh, in a storage area in in North Carolina in Hendersonville where he lived for I think like about twenty years, maybe uh, eighty three to two thousand three approximately. Um, he invited me up when I first corresponded with him to, to go through his files on mathematical magic cards. And I didn't feel that I should intrude on his 
privacy. Um, that was probably a bad mistake on my part because the opportunity slipped away. A few years later, when I did say, well, I might take you up on that, he told me that the papers, he had given those papers to Stanford. He had a smaller filing system, which he moved to Oklahoma with him, but the big files, which I believe would have filled a couple of rooms, did go to Stanford. And I think Stan Isaacs, who is a retired mathematician, computer scientist in that area, geographically, he indexed them all. And I believe... You can actually look stuff up online, I think, there now. That archive, I think, is publicly accessible. At least you can tell what's in there. You may have to go to Stanford to see the stuff. Right. I was, I was, yes, I was, you, you read my mind there. I was wondering if, if that material had been digitized and, and would be made available. Yeah, I don't know if it's digitized, but it certainly has been indexed. And the, I've, I've looked up things in the index. Um, I'm pretty sure that's online. That, 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 yes, that's a, that's a pretty exciting... That would um, include his correspondences, I would imagine, with Escher with Salvador Dali, with Roger Penrose, John Conway, Saul Goulom, Diaconis as a teenager. Diaconis was a classic case of a teenager who wrote to Martin and ended up being, you know, his equal and, and then some. And yeah. So let me um, switch gears back to you. And, and, and I'm curious if you hear from people who are using your materials. Again, the book is, is, is probably too new to, um, to, to speak to in this regard. But are, are there teachers who are teaching mathematical card magic, maybe through your MAA columns? Right, You told one story earlier of the, the, the kid from Connecticut who, right. um, who, who learned one of your tricks from somebody who found it on the web. Do you, do you, do you hear of people formally doing classes? Well, not so far, but it did occur to me as the book was heading to the printers that it does have 13 chapters and uh, plus an introductory one and a coda, so that kind of ties in nicely with their 14-, 15-week semester. So I'm actually planning to put together a syllabus and try to teach from it myself, maybe for a seminar, a special seminar. It could be a freshman seminar. It could be a senior seminar. It could be a special topics course. So I'm I'm going to try that myself, and we did mention in the publicity blurb that went with the book that it would be suitable for an introductory seminar. So maybe maybe people will try to use it. Uh, it's certainly inexpensive compared to the price of textbooks. I mean, it's it's a fraction of the cost of of textbooks. Textbooks are getting obscenely expensive. Yes. And, yeah. You know, this book this book is thirty dollars full price, and you might be able to get a discount. So it's it's a cheap, the cheap days. Right. If you wait long enough, people will have used copies that, that will be less expensive. Also, I think it might be fun to do, you know, maybe like one of these um, MOOC um, courses, right. these, these mm-hmm. massive online mm-hmm. um, courses like um, Keith Devlin right. does at Stanford. Yeah. There's a possibility, too. I, I think that would be a lot of fun to... Yeah, I mean, you'd need to have... The interactivity and the video, you know, because people need to see it being done. Right, but that's right. That that that's where the web, you know, as much as I love digital uh, or um, non-digital books, I I love digital video because it is it is it is very engaging. Anyway, I think that might that might be a lot of fun to do um, someday. So let me ask you um, one more question, and then I'm going to leave you a little bit of time. I know you want to um, plug some some events coming up in the next year, but let me ask the question I ask almost everyone. 
is if a parent came to you and told you that their child was struggling in math, what advice would you give to that parent? And this is a very open-ended question. People sometimes grumble at, at the fact it's not a specific question, but I intentionally want it to be as broad as possible. What advice would you give? Gosh, well, it's a vague question, I think. Uh, okay. Um, what, what age is the what age is the uh, the kids? Uh, you know, is the parent involved? Is the parent capable of being involved? Um, you know, the 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 people I teach uh, at the college level tend to be you know, seventeen to twenty two age group. I I don't personally have the elementary, middle school, high school uh, classroom experience, and having not gone through the U.S. system as a student either. It's actually a bit of a mystery to me what goes on in those rooms, to be perfectly frank. Um, teachers don't seem to have that much power. Um, we're obviously hearing a lot lately about teachers being forced to teach to the test and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and students coming out of school, high school, certainly arrive at university or college relatively ill-prepared for the rigors of third level for the most part, I feel uh, they often say, but I've already taken calculus. And they might have seen a few derivatives, but that's not the same as taking a proper calculus course. So there's, there's that, you know, unfortunate factor where they're taking a class that they feel they already know. And even if it's pre-calculus, they probably don't know as well as they should. So they're, they're sleeping through the class or texting through the class because they want to be challenged with something new. So there's certainly a challenge there. How do you engage students? Some colleges such as Emory University, don't teach pre-calculus. They, they just figure the kids have to catch up. If they don't know it, they just need to go to the lab and maybe take some remedial online activities to, to bring them up to speed. So it's it's very difficult transition, I think, from high school to third level university or college in the U.S. because there's no uniformity. Even within certain states, there isn't uniformity. It can vary from county to county. And the shocking thing to me is that I meet students and they say, I'm sorry, I'm not doing well in your class, but I haven't taken math in two years. And I say, oh, are you a junior? And they say, no, no, I'm a freshman. So they're meaning that they've actually got through high school. They've spent those teenage hormone-driven years being allowed not to do any mathematics. And that just doesn't happen in most other countries. So, you know, I'm not answering your question, but if only every student in America had to take some mathematics every year, right up to the day they graduate from high school, I think the country would be better off. We'd get more students into STEM careers, more students into mathematics. The U.S. wouldn't be falling behind in technology as much as it is. We've come a long way from the heyday of the space race. Okay. All right. Um... So this so this is a time for you to give give some plugs. I know you want to speak about celebration of mind, gathering for Gardner, Math Awareness Month. So 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 tell us about these things. Well, about 20 years ago, some friends of Martin Gardner, coincidentally Atlanta-based, started something called the Gathering for Gardner, and it's a conference that now happens every two years. It happens in Atlanta. It's by invitation only. It's expensive. It's insider. Even though I've lived in Atlanta for 26, 27 years, I didn't know about it for the first 10 years it was going on. So you had to be well-connected with the magic world or puzzle world or illusionists, magicians, 
And when I say puzzle, I mean physical puzzles like mechanical puzzles, wooden puzzles, glass puzzles, metal puzzles, as well as brain teasery type puzzles. The kind of people who go or have gone over the years include some very big names, such as John Conway from Princeton, Roger Penrose, um, Penn and Teller. I'm not sure if Copperfield's been there, but top-notch people in their fields. I finally had a chance to go about a decade ago and was just blown away by the intellectual overload. The stimulation is really intense for three or four days. You get amazing talks, uh, which make your head want to explode, and it just keeps coming at you. So it's it's really fascinating stuff and a fabulous mixture. You get hackers, you get magicians, you get top-notch mathematicians, but doing stuff that's approachable to the general public. However, the reality is that's off-limits to the average listener, unless you are connected to recreational mathematics world or magic world or the puzzle-making world. When Martin died in May of 2000, a new idea was formed by the people who ran Gathering for Gardner, which was to try and broaden it and make it more you know, accessible to the general public. So something quite different was proposed, and it's happened every October. October was Martin's birthday, so it's happened 2010, 11, 12, 13. This is year four. It's called the Celebration of Mind. It's promoted and uh, made possible, facilitated by the Gathering for Gardner. So there's a great website, celebrationofmind.org, or if you just Google the phrase Celebration of Mind, you'll find various other resources. But it's intended to be accessible to anybody anywhere on the planet. And over the years, we've built it up so it has happened on every continent and the North and South Poles. So hmm. several hundred of these take place. We're hoping uh, this year to get up to uh, two or 300. I think we had 140 or something last year. It could be three people in a pub in England talking about logic puzzles that Martin would have enjoyed. It could be 800 kids in Israel in a big organized structured activity where they're making hexaflexicons or doing illusions or whatever. The, the gatherings have, the gatherings as we're calling them, but they're celebrations of mind events have been small, they've been large, they've been public, they've been private. You can host one, you can attend one. Uh, if you're in a town or you don't see one on the map at celebrationofmind.org, we'd encourage you to host your own. Grab a deck of cards, grab Alice in Wonderland, the annotated Alice in Wonderland, Martin's best-selling book. has sold half a million copies since 1960. That was another of his passions, Alice in Wonderland. Whatever of his interests interests you, it could be skepticism. It could be puzzles, illusions. Uh, just get a few people together and do something. Stretch, stretch your mind, stretch somebody else's mind. That counts as an event. Could be in a library, could be in a school. We've had them happen in old folks' homes. Somebody took one into an old folks' home because her dad was interested in this and got other people interested in it. The old folks' home, I think it was Oakland, California, had a great time. People perform magic for them. So are, are, are you involved in organizing? This? I've been involved in these for the last few years, yes. Okay, I'll, I'll just want to... Okay. But the celebrations of mind are, are open. You know, you can organize your own, and there's resources on the website to help you. Last year, Vi Hart, who makes amazing videos, did a series mm -hmm. of four videos for us on hexaflexagons. That was the first column that Martin wrote for Scientific American back in December 56, I think. Oh, I didn't realize that was his first. Okay. That was his first, and I think Vi's video got 
five or six million hits in 10 days. Not too many mathematics videos do. And she made four of them. Um, they're a terrific inspiration. And she speaks in one of the videos about how she was inspired by her dad, who was in turn inspired by Martin. So it's that's right. That was that, right. That was George Hart, who was one of the co-founders of the Museum of Mathematics. Correct. Yes. So yes. So both of them are just just yes, very inspiring people. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, Vi has something in common with Martin, which is that she's an incredibly dynamic, energetic visionary communicator of mathematics. Unlike Martin, paradoxically and perhaps surprisingly, she doesn't have any training in mathematics. Right. She has a but music degree, doesn't she? She has a music degree. Now, she has a dad who knew a lot of mathematics, and she's obviously been exposed to it and learned plenty. But I'm not sure how much mathematics she took in college, but she certainly didn't major in it. Martin Gardner never took a mathematics course past high school. High school for him would have been in the 1930s, early 30s, and yet he has done more to turn more people onto mathematics than anybody in the history probably of mathematics. And that's a quote from I think uh, Percy Diaconus, or maybe it's maybe it's um, Richard Guy. Might be Richard Guy. I think Percy said that he had turned thousands of mathematicians into children, thousands <laughs> of children into mathematicians. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that, that, yes, I, I love that quote. Yes. Okay, so go on. So, so, so Celebration of Mind. So Celebration of Mind, uh, we're gearing up for one this October. Some of them have already taken place in September. It, it, it's, we're pretty loose about the time frame. It doesn't have to be his birthday, which is the 21st of October. Whatever date works for you is good, but we're focusing on that date. Uh, next year will be Martin's 100th birthday. So next year, 2014, October, we're hoping that we really have an enormous number and that the word gets out all over the planet about this. So we're trying to build up the publicity and the hype between now and then. The Gathering for Gardeners happening next April, no, next March. The Gathering for Gardeners happening next March in Atlanta. But again, that will be just a couple of hundred of the so-called insiders. But the general public in the U.S. will actually have a taste of things Gardner-esque because every April there's Mathematics Awareness Month. And this coming April, the theme is Mathematics, Magic, and Mystery. And that, of course, is the name of one of Martin's famous books. Mm. It's, not a it's not a coincidence. It's going to be a month with uh, great web resources, one for each day of the month, 30 different topics, including things like magic squares, disappearing area paradoxes, card tricks, obviously, shuffling tricks, optical illusions, uh, wonderful stuff, Fibonacci numbers, things that Martin turned people onto over decades. We're going to try to turn every kid in college and maybe some high schoolers too onto that next April. Is is there a so, website for Math Awareness Month? It's not up yet. It'll, I think it'll be launched uh, probably January. We're working on what's going to be in it now. The people in charge of it are two mathematicians at Randolph-Macon College in Virginia. and Those are Bruce Torrance, who has been the editor of Mathematical Horizons for the last five years, and his wife, Eve Torrance, they're both mathematicians. She's also the president of Pioneer Epsilon, the Math Honors Society for undergraduates. So they're heading up that initiative, and the website, I believe, will go live. Well, uh, uh, the website may not go live until Math Awareness Month, but there'll be a website with a hint of what's to come, hopefully by January. Right, I mean, I'm looking, I'm Googling now, and I see, right, the on the... American Mathematical Society 
site, there's a reference to, I guess, this past, the 2013. Right, this year it was Math and the Environment, and that webpage is still up. The nice thing is that those webpages stay up in perpetuity, so you can actually track them back a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that will be up next April will be available for people to play with throughout the rest of 2014, in particular October, for that celebration of mind. Right. But also in, in the years ahead. Very cool. Uh, do you know, is are any of the, the talks from Gathering for Gardener recorded and made available to the public? There hangs a tale. I believe everything has been videotaped. Certainly everything I've ever been at has been videotaped. There's a vast archive of videotapes, and we are beginning to have discussions within the Gathering Celebration organizational meetings to try to make some of that available. Uh, the problem is it's, it's a huge task because it's been let build up for 20 years. I mean, there's 10 meetings worth of stuff, and it's, it's a lot of video. The, old, the early stuff is on VHS or, or earlier technology, not DVD. Uh, it's, it's a huge task. Uh, we're going to need resources, funding. I mean, we have, we have some manpower and woman power, people who are willing to slog through it, but we need people with technical expertise who can, you know, edit, chop stuff up, move it around, pretty it up, do some post-production, put the proper credits on at the dates, and so on. And that doesn't come cheaply. So if we have any listeners who have those skills and are willing to volunteer some time and their expertise, we're very interested in hearing from you. Sure. And I I also imagine that, that this could be made into a commercial venture, at least to the point of, of paying for itself and paying for the talent to, to produce um, videos? Well, that's uh, not something, to my knowledge, that's been discussed in the past. Uh, we're very much a non-for-profit. But perhaps that could be considered in the future. Right. I mean, I, I would certainly pay for, for that material, and I imagine lots of mathematicians, computer scientists, magicians, enthusiasts um, would be more than willing to pay if that would make the material available. Right. I mean, there are other questions involved there, such as getting clearance rights and permissions. And sure. Would, would the people who spoke at these things be happy that their work was being charged for and so on? And with the passage of time, you know, there have been terrific presenters who have shuffled off this mortal coil. Since the meetings go back 20 years, and some of them were contemporaries of Martin's, people who started in the early days. But we're very lucky to have some real live wires who still come to the meetings who are close to being Martin's contemporaries. Richard Guy, who's well into his 90s. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And Raymond Smullyan, mm-hmm. the man whose book I bought back in 1978. It had a Monty Python-esque title, which in those days was completely revolutionary. The title of the book was, What is the Name of This Book? Mm-hmm. Now yep. such themes seem like cliches, but that just shows you how far we've come in the last 35 years. But Ray Smullyan is a brilliant uh, mind, a very entertaining stand-up comic, and a terrific concert pianist. He was a, trained as a classical pianist. He's well into his 90s, I believe. And if you look him up on the web, he's got a wonderful web page where he just chats to you on video and tells great stories and great jokes. He's, he's, he's an extraordinary force of nature at 90-something. Hmm. Very cool. Wonderful stuff. Um, 
so th this this has been a wonderful interview. I'm 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 very delighted for the the time we got to spend um, this morning. Any closing words? Well, no. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. That's uh, I hadn't hadn't thought of anything uh, in the way of clothing. Um, unless you prompt me with some questions that I can riff on. No, no. I think I think I think I think we're uh, good. This this has been a delightful interview. Lots of Lots of wonderful stuff to to chew on for people who are interested in math or magic or Martin Gardner. I could I could, uh, I could throw in one little final Martin Gardner story. Please. It's really interesting because Martin Gardner was this powerhouse intellectually, a man of letters, a man of numbers, a man of patterns, a man of physics. His book on the ambidextrous universe alone would have made him famous, and it's way beyond my understanding, but that was just an indication of the depth of this man in so many areas. The extraordinary thing is what a humble man he was in person. I remember, I think it was the first time I went to see him, we were walking back from the lunchroom to his room, and there was another resident of the old folks' home, an elderly lady who was somewhat distressed, and she was kind of sobbing quietly and walking up and down the hall. And Martin said hello to her, and I said hello to her, and we went into Martin's room, and he said to me, yes, she, she, she cries a lot. She seems to be just distraught, and I don't know how we can help her. And then we spoke a little bit, and the cries got louder and louder, and she started shouting. So we went out to see what was going on. There was no nurse around, and she was really very, very distraught and upset about something and shouting out and lashing out with her hands. So I panicked and went to get a nurse. It took me a while to find one because they were cleaning up from lunch and everything. And when I came back, it was all over. She was completely calm, sitting on a bench, chatting away to Martin. Martin had calmed her down. And I was intrigued that he took the time and he had the skills to do this. So I talked later and it just blew me away, you know. He could have just left and let, you know, waited for the nurse to come, but he, he wanted to help her, and he succeeded. And the funny thing was, he said to me, uh, the next time I visited, I said, oh, whatever happened to that lady who was, had been distressed? And he said, oh, sadly, she died since he last visited. And then we talked for a minute, and then he said, oh, I forgot to, I forgot to say something. He said, that lady, I found out she was a mathematician. And he said, apparently a very good one. Apparently a very good one. And I said, that's interesting. Why was she here? And he said, well, her daughter had you know, lived here, and she came back to this part of the country to be near her daughter, which is exactly what he did. His son lived nearby. I had to keep an eye on him. I asked him if he, if he could find out her name. I was very curious who she was. And uh, he never was able to find out or he forgot. But the next time I visited, you know, the opportunity had passed. But I found it very touching. Hmm. Yes. Wow. That, that, is a, that is a wonderful note to end on. So again, thank you. And to our listeners, there you have it. Um, Colin Mulcahy, Inspired by Math. <laughs>